Okay, well, we're going to continue our study of the essential truths of the Christian faith uh, going off of uh, R.C. Sproul's book by the same name. So let me pray for us and uh, we'll get started. Father, we're thankful for this beautiful morning, for your creation and for the beauty of the changing of the seasons and your faithfulness that we see uh, each day of our life. I thank you for this group of people who have assembled uh, in desire to grow closer to you and to have a deeper understanding of your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you bless our time here this morning as we as we talk and as we study. Pray that your, your name would be lifted up and glorified and your spirit would be at work helping us to understand you and your truths better. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. My name is Brent Evers. I'm glad to be with you again. So today I've got just listed on the board there the, uh, the topics that we're going to cover, the chapters we're going to cover, and, and a, a, as you know and as you've seen, we, we, we cover quite a bit of material each time. Could, could you guys shut those doors? For, appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, a lot of material, you know, we kind of cov- cover it in high overview, and, and, but, but the point is you're just getting these concepts into our minds, so as we read our Bibles, as we hear the Bible preached uh, each Sunday morning that you start to put it all together to understand really how God has worked through his word and, and how he's teaching us through his word. So today we're going to start a new section of the, uh, of the book called The Nature and Attributes of God. And these are the topics we're going to cover. The incomprehensibility of God, the triunity of God, also called the Trinity, uh, the self-existence of God, the omnipotence of God, and the omnipresence of God. So when we read about God in scriptures, one of the most common ideas we see is that he is beyond us. He is beyond the complete grasp of our finite minds. In Psalm 145, verse 3, we read, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. In the book of Job, we read, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Isaiah writes, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The same idea is encountered in the New Testament. Paul, for example, writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That's from Romans 11. So the idea we encounter in passages like these is the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. This phrase is commonly misunderstood, so it helps to maybe begin by explaining what it does not mean. When we say that God is incomprehensible, we do not mean that he cannot be known or that we cannot know anything at all about God. God has revealed himself to us, and therefore we can know something about him. We know something of God uh, through his general and his special revelation, as we've seen in previous lessons. So remember his creation, just like we see the beauty of the the trees and we see what's going on in, in the changing of the seasons. 
his creation reveals truth about him, and that would be general revelation, as we've talked about. Romans 1 is an example of general revelation, and his written word would reveal truth about him, and that would be special revelation. It gives us more details about who God is and who we are in relationship to God. So it's important to note, however, that he has not revealed everything about himself to us. We couldn't handle it. Instead, his revelation is according to our finite capacity. So when we say that God is incomprehensible, we do not mean that we cannot know anything at all about God. What we do mean is that we cannot know him exhaustively and comprehensively. Why not? Well, the obvious answer is because God is God and we are not. God is infinite and we are finite. The finite cannot grasp the infinite. The finite cannot contain the infinite. And it's honestly simply prideful to think that our tiny little minds could fully comprehend an infinite God. And if we could, or if we had a God who, who we could fully comprehend, then he wouldn't be the true God. <clears throat> there are two truths about the Christian faith. In the simplest Christian truth... There resides deep insight that can occupy the minds of the most brilliant people for a lifetime. A, a childlike understanding of the gospel is possible, and yet, even in those simple truths, the simple truth of the gospel, uh, deep thinking for your entire life can, can take you uh, in, in through, through your whole life, uh, deep theologians. But secondly, even in the highest of theological thought, deep theology, we can never really rise above a child's level of understanding. The mysterious depths and the riches of the character of God. Even a child can understand the basic truths of the Bible, but the depths of God continue to amaze us for eternity. And I, I mentioned this in the, in the first lesson. When we think about being born again, new creations, and, and studying the Word of God and having an appreciation and understanding of God, it will serve us well for, for the rest of our lives. But on into eternity, we will be eternal learners. So the, the better the foundation, the broader the foundation that we're able to acquire now, it will serve us on into eternity. We won't become omniscient, that we'll talk about next week. We won't become all-knowing when we get to heaven. God is God and we're not. But we will uh, have the opportunity to continue to learn um, forever in an un unencumbered way. You take away forgetfulness, you take away distractedness and all the things that frustrate us in the way we learn now. Or for, yeah, forgetfulness is my big thing right now. Like, I know I knew that. Um, but what a blessing to be able to continue to learn and marvel of the things of God for eternity. <clears throat> Now, it's important to point out that the knowledge that God gives us of himself through revelation is both real and useful. He doesn't give us unuseful information. What he gives us is real and useful. And we can know God to the degree that he chooses to reveal himself. <clears throat> it's been said that the finite can grasp the infinite, but we can never hold, it, hold the infinite within, within our grasp. We can't control, we can't control, totally understand God, but we can grab hold of him and hold on to what he gives us. There's always more to God than we can apprehend. 
Um, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Martin Luther referred to these two aspects of God, the hidden and the revealed. The secret things, it says that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's a portion of the divine knowledge. There's a large portion of divine knowledge that remains hidden to our gaze. We live and work in the light of what God has revealed. These truths belong to us and to our children forever. So that's the end of incomprehensibility of God. Any thoughts? Any, um, think about any implications of this doctrine. When you think about the fact that we cannot fully understand God, what should our response be to that? Any ideas? Well, it, isn't it true we don't really fully understand each other? <laughs> Let alone, so, yeah. You know, we should not be alarmed that we don't yeah. know everything about God. Yeah, yeah. I think it brings uh, a sense of awe to the fact that, that God is not, we're not able to understand him. Uh, worship, you know, I think it drives us to worship him. Uh, at the very least, it should encourage humility. Our God is infinitely exalted above us. We must understand our place as creatures in relationship to the Creator. So, four, uh, four summary statements about the incomprehensibility of God. First, there is a profound meaning in even the simplest of Christian truths. Number two, no matter how deep our knowledge of theology, there will always be much about the nature and character of God that will remain a mystery to us. Number three, no human can have a comprehensive knowledge of God and number four, this doctrine does not mean that we cannot know anything about God, that we can know nothing about God. It means that our knowledge is limited, bounded by our humanity. Okay, so then the next chapter is an uh, example of an incomprehensibility of, uh, of not being able to fully understand, and that's the triunity of God, also called the Trinity. There are numerous passages that teach that God the Father... God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are distinct persons, and yet each hold the attributes of deity. The Bible also emphatically and unambiguously declares that there is only one God. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. So you feel this tension. Taking all scripture into account, Orthodox Christian theology has always affirmed that the one true God is triune in nature. Three co-equal and co-eternal persons in the Godhead. <clears throat> the triune God began to allude to this aspect of his nature right in the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Verses 26 and 27. Listen to this. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then on in verse 27, it begins, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. So we see God saying and creating singular and plural forms of nouns and verbs. It's just back and forth. God singular let us make man in our image. And this may seem like confused grammar, but rather we are being taught from the beginning of Scripture that God is a plurality in unity. 
We can't say from this just this passage that he's a trinity yet, but God progressively reveals more and more about himself later in Scripture to bring us to that conclusion. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission, Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize his followers in the name, the singular name, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The term Trinity describes a relationship not of three gods, but of one God, who is three persons. Though the term Trinity is not found in the Bible, the concept is clearly there. Trinity does not mean, does not mean tritheism, that there are three beings who together are God. The word Trinity is used in an effort to define the fullness of the Godhead, both in his unity and his diversity. The unity of the Godhead is in the fact that all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, each have the attributes of deity. But there is a distinction in the work done by each member of the Trinity. For instance, the work of salvation. It's, one of the, uh, it's in one sense common to all three persons of the Trinity, yet in the manner of activity, there are different operations that are being done by the Father, Son, and the Spirit. The Father initiates creation and redemption. So Father initiates. The Son redeems. The Son redeems the creation. And then the Holy Spirit applies. The Holy Spirit regenerates and sanctifies, applying redemption to the believer. So the Father initiates, the Son redeems, and the Spirit applies all in relationship to our to our. Um, salvation. The Trinity does not refer to parts of God or even to roles and human analogies. And human analogies such as, you know, we, we try to come up with concepts that explain the Trinity in our everyday world, and it's, it's just impossible. You, know, you may have heard that people say, well, a man could be a father, a son, and a husband all at the same time. It still just doesn't capture the concept of who God is and, and the way he is triune in nature. The doctrine of the Trinity does not fully explain the mysterious character of God, but it sets boundaries outside of which we must not step. It defines the limits of our finite reflection. I, I was reading uh, a devotional that uh, Jonathan Edwards, you know, the great American preacher from the early history of, of America, he was reflecting on why would God do this? Why would God be in Trinity form and, and try to express it to us. And he, here's what he said. I used to think sometimes with myself, if such doctrines as those of the Trinity and decrees are true, yet what need was there of revealing them in the gospel? What good do they do toward the advancing of holiness? But now I don't wonder at all at their being revealed. For such doctrines as these are glorious inlets into the knowledge and view of the spiritual world. And the contemplation of supreme things, the contemplation of supreme things, the knowledge of which I have experienced, how much it contributes to the betterment of the heart. If you've ever read Jonathan Edwards, you know you've got to just take it slow and go back and read it again, read it again. But he's amazing in his thoughts. So I think he's saying the Trinity directs us to appreciate the complexity of our God. A, complex, a complexity, really, that we would not have ever thought possible, and we still can't comprehend, but it just gives us a depth of understanding. A depth of incomprehensibility that's found in the concept of the Trinity that gives us a foundation to stand on and a loving, authoritative God to worship.
Paul closes his letter to the Corinthians like this in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's the Son, and the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Just the Trinity, we see it expressed so often in Scripture. Any comments? I know that's a a big concept to just try to cover in, in a few minutes like that. Questions, comments about the Trinity? So Gary Scott can answer the questions here. Why do you think uh, some of the denominations want to poo-poo the Trinity? Yeah, that's interesting. And, uh, yeah. Um, well, did you have any denomination thought, uh, in particular you're wondering about? Or? No. Well, for me, Mormon, I went into Mormon all the time. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting how even like the oneness Pentecostals, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, really pervert scripture in the fact that they, they don't want to make Christ actually God. They want him to make the son of God a, a lesser role. Um, and then they, they build their case and they figure out a way to, to defend their positions. But, uh, you know, Satan has his ways of perverting the truth and, and distracting and, and, and mis- misleading people away from the truth of the gospel. So... Yeah, the modalism, you know, so modalism is, is a heresy that uh, I think the one is Pentecostals say that God the Father is the, in the Old Testament, and then Christ came, so God changed modes, moved into the role of the Son while he was here, and then he ascended, and then the role of the Holy Spirit took over. So, But we would disagree with that. That's not in Scripture. Just like I said, you know, we can see the work of all three persons of the Godhead uh, at all times in, in Scripture, so. Okay, so then let's look at the, um, the self-existence of God. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. God was there. God was before creation. He is the creator, and he is not created. When God revealed his name, I Am, to Moses at the burning bush, he was revealing something very important about himself, namely that he is self-existent. He has the power of being in and of himself. He depends on nothing and no one for his existence. The fact, this fact has enormous consequences for how we understand the world around us. There are only three possible explanations for anything that exists right now. It's either self-created or it's eternal, or it's created by something that's eternal. Well, the first one, self-creation, we can rule out right away. The idea of self-creation is a logical impossibility. Why? Because for something to create itself, it would have to be before it was. It would have to be and not be at the same time in the same relationship, which violates what Stephen Freeland has talked about for the last couple of weeks, the principle of, or the law of non-contradiction. He would say, I, I'm Stephen Freeland, and I'm not Stephen Freeland. You, you can't be both at the same time. So basically, it's a non-possibility of something to create itself. In, con- in contrast to self-creation, there's the idea of self-existence. Um, and this concept is called aseity. You can see that word right there, aseity, under the self-existence of God. This is an obscure term, yet it's one, in this one little word, it captures all the glory of the perfection of God's being. 
What makes God different from people and from any other creaturely thing is that God and God alone has aseity. He alone exists by his own power. No one made him or caused him. He exists in and of himself. This is a quality that no creature shares. People are not self-existent. Nothing else is. Only God has the concept of self-existence. If anything exists now, something must have aseity. God must have the power of being within himself, and that is not derived from something outside of himself. <clears throat> God is eternal, and everything else is his creation. That's the only thing that makes sense. Dr. Sproul mentions one of the oldest and deepest questions of all. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why does anything exist? What is the point of it all? A necessary answer to at least part of that question is that because God exists. God exists in, hu in, in himself eternally. He is the source and the, the fountain, fountainhead of all being. He alone has within himself the power of being. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Paul declares our dependence upon the power of God's being for our own existence when he says, in Acts 17, 28, he says, In him we live and move and have our being. Only because of God, in him, do we have anything. Live, move, have our being. He thoughts about the self-existence of God. It's the only thing that makes sense in this, this world that we live Okay, so now we come to the omni attributes. The omni. Uh, omni means all. So they characterize God as all powerful, all present, and all knowing. Each of these involves the other two, and each provides a perspective on the all embracing lordship of the true God. Omnipotence means all powerful. It means that God is in total control of himself and his creation. Omniscience means all-knowing, which uh, Pastor Greg will cover next week. It means that he is the ultimate criterion of truth and falsity, so that his ideas are always true. Omnipresence, or means all-present, that means that since God's power and knowledge extend to all parts of his creation, he himself is present everywhere. So together, these omni-attributes define God's lordship, and they yield a rich understanding of creation, providence, and salvation. In go uh, I'm going to cover omnipotence and omnipresence, as you can see up there, and then uh, next week, like I said, uh, Pastor Greg will start with omniscience. So let's look at omni omnipotence. Omnipotence means that God holds all power over his creation. No part of creation stands outside the scope of his sovereign control. Just think about that for a second. No part of creation stands outside of the scope of his sovereign control. Scripture affirms God's omnipotence by saying that God does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115. Nothing is too hard for him. Genesis 18. 
His word is never void of power, so when he speaks, everything in creation obeys him. Isaiah 55. Of course, creatures do disobey God. That's the essence of sin. But God has control even over sinful actions. Genesis 45 is the story of Joseph and his brothers. And it's a reminder that Joseph recognized that his brother's evil actions against him were under God's sovereign and good plan. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He ordains sinful, disobedient actions for his good purposes. Doesn't cause them, he allows them. So his word allows, his word always prevails, and we can trust that his prophecies always come to pass. Often people um, infer from these passages that God can do anything. When you see the omnipotence of God, it's just like there's nothing God can't do. God can do anything. But that doesn't really reflect the teaching of Scripture. There are some things that God cannot do. He cannot lie. He cannot perform any immoral action. Since God is perfectly holy and good, he cannot do anything evil. And since he is perfect truth, he cannot do things that are logically contradictory. His truth is perfect consistency of thought and action. God cannot do things inappropriate to his nature as God. Does that make sense to you? It may sound strange to say there's certain things God cannot do, but he cannot go against his nature and anything that would be related to that. He cannot allow sin or unholiness into his presence. That's why non-believers cannot go into his presence in heaven. They have to stand in the righteousness of Christ to be uh, in the presence of God's holiness. So how could we define God's omnipotence more precisely? The basic definition of God's omnipotence is this, that he has complete and total control over everything. (laughs) I think that covers it. Complete and total control over everything. This includes the smallest details of the natural world. We see things like the falling of a sparrow or the number of hairs that grow on our head from Matthew uh, uh, chapter 6 and 10. Even the events that we might call random, that we ascribe to chance, are really God at work, Proverbs 16. That includes not only the small things, but also the big things, which, after all, are accumulations of small things. I was thinking about 9-11 the other day and how just, well, just thinking about Israel and just how, you know, I've been to Israel a couple of times and I was amazed at the level of security that they have in the airport, just everywhere. They are, they are experts at security and less, and, and yet how did, how did this happen? How did that security get breached with this, this attack that happened? And I thought of 9-11 and just all the, the seeming small things that got through that turned into a big catastrophe, and yet God has allowed that. God is in control of all that. So small things that lead to big things that God is going to use for his purposes. He determines what nations will dwell in which territory from Acts 17. He decides what king is to rule and when and where from Isaiah 44. He decides whether the purposes of a ruler will stand or fall from Psalm 33. And he ordained that wicked people would take the life of Jesus Christ so that sinners might live from Acts 2. God rules not only the 
important events of human history, but he also rules over the lives of individual people, the big and the small. He knits us together in our mother's wombs, Psalm 139. He decides whether we will travel or stay home, from James 4. He controls even the decisions of wicked people. <clears throat> but he also exerts his power to save sinners, to bring forgiveness and new life, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Our salvation is entirely the work of God's power, not at all our own work. We believe in Christ because he has appointed us to eternal life, Acts 13, 48. And because he has opened our hearts to believe the gospel, Acts 16. So his power is universal. It controls everything in the universe. For the Christian, God's omnipotence is a source of great comfort. We know that the same power God displayed in creating the universe is at his disposal to, to assure our salvation. If you ever doubt your salvation, if you're really, you start to question what God's going to do or if he's able, just really think about the fact that he's in control of every single thing going on at any given moment in this whole universe. We know that no part of creation can frustrate his plans for the future. Dr. Sproul said this years ago, and I read it again, and I, I just remember this. There are no maverick molecules in the universe. No maverick molecules that could possibly disrupt his plans. Taking it down to the basic elements of life, there's no molecule, no atom in this universe that's out of sync or out of God's control. The great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, says, Though powers and forces of this world threaten to undo, we will not fear. We can rest in the knowledge that nothing can withstand the power of God. He is the one and the only one who is almighty. Questions, comments about the omnipotence of God? Yeah, one kind of practical question. We live in a world today that totally rejects that. They don't only reject it, they think it's evil. You know, it's patriarchal and authoritative. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we, believing this to be true, hmm. how do we integrate that into, you know, uh, other than just our own private belief, when we go to the work site, when we go to the school, we go to our community, that are around people that totally despise hmm. that. How, how do we live that out? What do we do to affirm that, to, uh, uh, to mm. demonstrate that. To mm. I'm going to let you comment on that too, but I was just thinking as far as pray for discernment and pray for words that might be helpful uh, and hopeful for people that are really, just even during COVID, I mean, you just saw so many people living in fear. Yeah. And yet as believers, we rested in the confidence that God has got this. God's totally in control of this virus. You know, we don't have to live in fear. So just trying to carefully um, make comments or something about, you know, uh, your faith. Uh, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. First Peter 3.15. What, 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 what do you think, Gary? What, what's... I, I think that we're afraid of being canceled. 
So we tend to just keep that private. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we're not willing to get on the stage, you know, the public stage and argue for that. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, it's, I think that that makes it difficult because we believe it in our head, we've been taught that, mm -hmm. and yet everything around us denies that and we don't know what to do. And I think we're, I think we're just afraid, uh, ill-equipped to address that. Well, at least we can remind each other, yeah. because we can start to get sucked into the, the, the fear or, or whatever. Um, so just, you know, families reminding each other, bodies of Christ reminding each other what is true about God and his power, and resting in that is, is, is a good start. But, you know, like, like I said, be ready to give uh, hope to people that might recognize, why aren't you freaking out like everybody else is? Like, well, here's why. Here's what I believe. Here's what scripture says. Here's my hope. That's a good, good thought, Gary. Stand firm. Stand firm. Amen. Okay, so then the last one is, uh, that we're going to cover today is the omnipresence of God. <clears throat> omnipresence defines God's presence in every place and every time. To say that God is present is to say that he is here with us. Really here, not absent. Sometimes we think about a person's presence being with his body. You know, it's like a teacher takes attendance. And so, you know, just because someone's present then we, we, we say, okay, well, he's here. But that isn't always the case. You know, what if Johnny's sleeping through class, you know? But God does not have to be, God does not have a body. He is immaterial. So how can we tell when God is present or absent? <clears throat> Scripture's answer is that God is present everywhere. Because as we see in his other attributes, his power, his knowledge are everywhere. If every event everywhere takes place, by God's power, and if he has exhaustive knowledge of everything his power has brought to pass, then certainly he is not absent, but present in each event. Though his presence is not quite the same as the presence of, his phys of physical beings, God's omnipotence and his omniscience imply his omnipresence. His omnipresence is a, is a presence both in place and in time. Both place and time. Psalm 139 indicates that God is present in every place. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so he is in every location. He is also the creator of time, the one without beginning or end. So he has been present in the world since its creation, and there will never be a time from which he is absent. In scripture, he freely enters history and interacts with creatures. We see that, we call them Christophanies, where Christ would show up in different aspects of the Old Testament just for a purpose. Um, supremely, he entered human history as Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin, where he died, rose again to save people from, our, from their sins, including us. So God's omnipresence is not just a the theoretical conclusion, it's a precious truth of redemption. Although we have sinned and deserve God's judgment, God comes to his faithful people and declares to them, I will be with you. This means that God is here wherever we are, but also that God is on our side. He is with us, not to destroy us, but to forgive and to save us from sin. So this with you 
this redeeming divine presence is found often in Scripture as his gracious promise. To Isaac, God said, I will be with you and I will bless you, from Genesis 26, verse 3. And that language often forms the basis of God's redemptive covenant. The heart of the covenant, God's redemptive promise, is that I will be your God and you will be my people. A precious togetherness of God with his people. Another aspect of God's omnipresence, the omni relates to not only the places where God is, but also to how much of him is in any given place. He's not only there, how much of God is there. God is not only present in all places, but he is fully present in every place. This is called his immensity, the omnipresence of God, immensity. His immensity does not refer to his size, but to his ability to be fully present everywhere. The doctrine of God's omnipresence appropriately fills us with awe. His, in addition to the reverence it engenders, the doctrine also provides proves to be comforting to believers. We can also be certain of God's undivided attention. We don't ever need to stand in line or to make an appointment to be with God. He's given us direct access to himself through prayer for every single believer. This doctrine is not at all comforting to the non-believer, however. There is no place to hide from God. There is no corner of the universe where God is not. The wicked in hell are not separated. Think about it. People think, well, I'm going to go to hell and I want to get away from God. They're not separated from God there. They're separated from God's goodness, God's benevolence. His wrath is with them constantly. Even in hell, God is there bringing justice to, to the wicked. It should not surprise us that a biblical name for Jesus is what? Emmanuel. God with us. As the Old Testament tabernacle was a place for God to dwell with his people, so Jesus, the Son of God, came and tabernacled among us from John 1. So God is present throughout heaven and earth everywhere to carry out his purposes. So here are four summary statements for the omnipresence of God. Number one, only an infinite spirit can be omnipresent. Number two, God is not be bound by time or space. His being transcends time and space. Number three, God's omnipresence includes his immensity by which he is able to be present in his fullness at all times and in all places. And number four, God's omnipresence is a comfort to the believer and a terror to the unbeliever. Okay, so that's all I have today. Uh, next week, Pastor Greg will be here to, to begin the next four sections, I believe. Um, questions, comments, anything else we could discuss before we, we're done? We have a few minutes here. Very good. Well, let me pray for us and we'll, we'll head to service. Lord, thank you for this morning and uh, these attributes that we see in your nature that we uh, are overwhelmed by, in a sense, and yet comforted by, Lord, as you've made them very clear in Scripture. And help us to rest in these truths that will um, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And as Gary has said, that, Lord, we pray that we would be able and willing to 
express these attributes to others as they, they might be um, in hard times or in tough situations. Lord, I pray that you would bless each uh, one of us here. And as we uh, move into our time of worship in the worship service, I pray that you prepare our hearts and minds that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, that you'd bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.